turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, there's a movie <clears throat> that um, many of you have been forced to watch, many men have been forced to watch, called The Notebook. And uh, if you know, it's got, you know, Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams in it, and there's a section where <clears throat> they were separated, and he wrote her like a letter every day for a year, and her parents didn't want him in her life, so the mom hid the letters from her. And, you know, I was thinking about that, that that is not too unlike how some Christians are when it comes to uh, the Bible, understanding the Bible, understanding God's love for them, that somehow the message gets intercepted, that somehow the message is not understood <clears throat> regarding the promises that God has made, the covenant that he's made with us, the love that he has for us, and there's this disconnect. And so... <clears throat> I think that if, if we hear anything today, it's along these lines of, of God's love for us, and we see this replete throughout Scripture. And I think that's my hope that you're able to get that message today, because I think there's a lot within, you know, some segments of Christianity that, that and maybe you've experienced some of that 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 message does not come through very clearly. It's all about obligation, and you better keep your end of the bargain, or, you know, God is going to do whatever to you. And, uh, you know, you're just not, gonna, you're not going to like that. And so there are a lot of ways in which we don't get the message. So listen, for those who don't think that we have a devil uh, that lives in this world, uh, first of all, you're welcome here. You don't have to believe everything we do to, to come here, but uh, that's cool. Uh, you might think this message in particular is going to be useless, all right? So I'll just kind of warn you ahead of time. But I would, I would ask you to hold off some judgment for a little bit, okay? Because can we not agree that all of us have ideas that don't always square with reality, Okay? And by the way, that's my definition of truth. Anything that squares with reality is true. And if it doesn't, it's not true, all right? I'm not just talking about being mistaken, but some of us actually have a bias against some kind of truth. For instance, I'll just throw this out as an example. Let's say that you had a very controlling mother, all right? Please no elbows to your mother if you're sitting next to her, all right? And, and so you think that all mothers or women are that way. Well, that would be a bias. That's, you know, that's not... True, but we, we think that sometimes. Or, or maybe let's say you had a person from another country live next door to you and you had a problem with them, and so you assume that everybody from that country is just like that person. And so again, we develop this kind of, of bias or assumption about people from, from that country. So we are influenced by our experiences. And these experiences especially uh, play tricks on us because we all have insecurities and fears that, uh, that our flesh kind of uh, plays on those things, all right? Now, we're also influenced by our culture, okay? Uh, you could grow up in certain sections of the country, for instance, down the south where you can't stand Alabama fans, okay? Alabama football fans, and because that, that's a kind of a cultural thing. Or, or maybe you think that uh, everybody out east, on the east coast, they're unfriendly. Or again, you live in certain parts of the country, you don't like a certain race, okay? It's cultural. So we have this 
cultural bias, this experiential bias. Now listen, if the devil is real, and by the way, my experience says he is, Jesus says he is, the Bible says he is, so I think he's real. If the devil's real, then his influence in these things, I think, is a great concern. Uh, in fact, the Bible uses a much stronger term than just he influences us. It says that he is like a lion seeking whom he may devour. All right, we're not just, you know, playing with a little kitty. Now, remember that Peter is writing to a group of Christians that have been severely persecuted. And like any of us who go through tough times, and, you know, if you were to peruse your own life and you think of your toughest times, we are prone to question whether God is real, whether God really cares, and whether God is going to keep us. We've all probably thought those thoughts, some more than others, but those are not things that are completely unrelated to us. So what we think about God and our relationship to him are critical areas that influence our faith. If we do not align with reality, or again, the truth, our faith can be shipwrecked. And I'd suggest that is much of what it means that Satan would devour us or ruin our faith. Okay? So if you don't think that there is a devil, can we at least agree that we don't always know the truth? And even when we do, sometimes we are not prone to align with the truth or believe the truth. That we all have, you know, a certain bias against certain truths. There's a fog of our ability to see the truth sometimes. We see it all the time in our life. And again, we are influenced by the culture, our experiences. But the Bible makes the claim that the devil influences us too. And if you believe in God, it's really not a far leap to believe in the devil. But again, based on the words of Jesus, based on the Bible, based on what I've seen with demonic manifestations um, and how I've witnessed evil in humanity, I don't have a hard time believing that there's a devil. <laughs> but this, uh, this passage assumes the reality of the devil and some of his influence on us. So let's take a look at our passage and let's stand as we do it, all right? Humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The Battle of Antietam in 1862 lasted for 12 hours and it's recorded as one of the bloodiest during the Civil War, with 10,000 Confederate casualties and even more on the Union side. At last the sun went down and the battle ended, wrote one historian. Smoke heavy in the air, the twilight 
quivering with the anguished cries of thousands of wounded men. And though militarily it was a draw, the mediocre Union General George McClellan was able to end Robert E. Lee's thrust into Maryland, forcing him to retire across the Potomac. Now, how was that possible? Well, two Union soldiers had found a copy of Lee's battle plans and had delivered them to McClellan before the engagement. You know, in some respects, we're no match for our adversary, Satan, in and of ourselves, certainly. I mean, his wiles were certainly to be wary of. But as with McClellan, our enemy plans have fallen into our hands. We know his usual strategies. Yes, he entices us with temptation, but he mainly uses deception. He uses lies. Listen, there's all kinds of conjecture about spiritual warfare and how you're supposed to, you know, memorize this floor, uh, formula, pray this certain prayer, do this, do that. And, and I'm not saying none of that has value. And there are a lot of people who think, you know, a demon calls this, demon calls that. They wig out about seeing certain manifestations, whatever. I can't comment on all of those things. They may or may not be Satan or his, his emissaries. I don't know. But this I do know. Of all the things talked about in the Bible about Satan, there is no question that the load of what we're supposed to understand, in other words, the, the majority of how we are supposed to do battle in this realm is with truth, is understanding deception. This is our primary weapon. If Peter meant for Christians to fight the physical persecutions that the Christians were experiencing, I mean, he might have told them to revolt against Rome. He might have told them to, you know, put together all of the uh, Christians who are being persecuted and file a lawsuit. He might have told them to start a Christian militia. Do we see any of that? Of course not. There's none of that. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to Christ. Satan uses bad ideas about God and about our relationship with God. This is his primary weapon. Clearly, we're not seeking to operate in the spiritual world with our primary tools, physical weapons. We're not using tanks or ICBMs against Satan. We have things that make a difference in the spiritual world. And what does it say here in this passage? Arguments that need to be destroyed. That means like a worldview that needs to be dismantled that doesn't acknowledge God. 
a lie or an opinion that blinds people to the truth of God. These are called strongholds. It is a bias, as I referred to earlier, a bias that is embedded in a lie and causes people to be blinded to the truth. Now, there are certainly people who refuse to acknowledge God, refuse to acknowledge the gospel, refuse to acknowledge a moral order. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God, who is the image of God. I think we could get agreement with pretty much everybody in this room about that. But the Bible also says believers are also believing lies. Believers are also deceived. Hebrews 13.9 tells believers to stop being carried away by all kinds of unusual teachings. Ephesians 5.6 tells the church not to let anyone deceive you. Colossians 2.8 says, see to it no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So anybody could be, can be deceived, but the antidote is truth, and Christ and the Word of God are the truth. And Satan is highly motivated to deceive us. Matthew 13, 19 says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. You know, sociologists talk about mental maps. Postmodernists talk about meta-narratives. It's our ideas that assume a certain reality. And humans have the ability to affirm ideas that are not real. Dallas Willard says, we live at the mercy of our ideas. He's echoing another verse that says, as a man thinketh, what? So is he. So with all that as a backdrop... Okay, it makes sense for Peter to give instruction on battling Satan. And verse 9 says that we resist him and we are firm in our faith. Faith refers to a body of truth God has revealed. And then our allegiance and our trust and our devotion is to be to that truth. So faith has kind of this objective factor of the body of truth and is subjective factor of our devotion to the truth. So we learn not to veer away from the truth of God. When we are sober and watchful, as verse 8 says, we are alert and on the lookout for what Satan, how he'll tempt us, how he'll deceive us. Christians are being persecuted and most common deceptions associated with those persecutions are that God does not care or keep us, that we are alone in the hardship, or I've screwed up too much for God to continue to love me. These are common deceptions. None of this is true, but the intensity 
of the roar of the lion are so fierce that we are beguiled to, to cave to the pressure. I just read this week of a professor somewhere, I can't remember the university, out on the East Coast. Lady professor made a simple statement in the class that uh, she believes that, you know, there, are, there is a male and a female, two genders. Now they want to fire. I mean, this is crazy town. What is going on? It's, it's a deception. It's a lie. There's a roar. There's a stronghold. There's a bias. And it creates this great pressure. Now listen, I'd be amiss if I didn't speak about Ephesians 6 as we talk about spiritual warfare. You'll see it actually repeats some of the same themes that I've already alluded to here. But let's read it, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic forces over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may, may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. I wish I had time to where we could break all of this down. We don't. But what I want you to see is obviously there is an injunction for us to stand firm that we're doing battle about with these spiritual forces, Paul, who wrote this, who wrote this from a cell, a jail, is probably looking at a Roman guard at the time he's writing it, and that's the object lesson that he's using, taking each piece of the armament and writing this out. There's a, there's a belt of truth. There's a sincere commitment to align all aspects of our life with truth. There is a breastplate of righteousness. Believers do not need to seek right standing before God with their own righteousness, but they stand in what Christ has done on their behalf. We're to put on the shoes of peace. All believers are made at peace with God through Christ. And we're to remind ourselves of that in the spiritual battle. And then we put on the shield of faith. When Satan attacks, it is often like a flaming arrow that can spread like fire if not um, put out, okay? And that comes from Satan's lies. And how do we put it out? We recall uh, God's affirming promises. We're vulnerable. At whatever point we feel God is letting us down or we align our hearts with a lie. We make a conclusion in our mind that leads us to be completely discontent with God, to draw a conclusion. We doubt his goodness. We doubt his provision. Now, I'm not talking about just a doubt. We all struggle with doubts. But I'm saying come, coming to a firm conclusion. So whether the onslaught is maybe having um, heavy temptation 
uh, or an isolated dart of discouragement, depression, despair, flee in panic. That would be Satan's goal. But we are to have utter confidence that God is able to protect, to provide for us in all circumstances. 1 John 5, 4 says, For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We then put on the helmet of salvation. Jesus is our helmet of salvation because he conquered sin through his death. And his resurrection guarantees our physical resurrection and his spirit can fill us. We have confidence of our eternal destiny. Our future is in his hands. And then we use the sword of the spirit. It's a particular word that means a dagger, not a machete, that goes to a specific point, just like you would uh, stab somebody. And you take the scripture, you apply it to a particular area, temptation or maybe a fear, whatever it is, and the word of God applies to that. This becomes our weaponry. And so, this leads us to our main text in 1 Peter 5, 9. We resist Satan by our devotion to the truth of God. Resist him firm in your faith. So we resist Satan by acknowledging the lie and affirming the truth. We agree with the truth and we are devoted to it. Be firm in your faith means despite being persecuted, we should not waver in our trust with God. And in our conviction that he will, in the end, vindicate us. Peter has already hit this note several times throughout the book when he says we've been chosen by God in 1 Peter 1.2. We're given a new birth into a living hope in 1 Peter 1.3. We're provided an inheritance that shall never perish in 1 Peter 1.4. We're shielded by God's power in 1 Peter 1.5. We've been called out of darkness into his wonderful light. In chapter 2, verse 9, God is building us up into a spiritual house in chapter 2, verse 5. And we have a holy and royal priesthood, a holy nation, a, a people belonging to him also in 1 Peter 2. Clearly, God wants us to put our hope in his power and the efficacy of Christ's work on the cross. These are things that God has bestowed upon us. Our hope, listen to me here, our hope, despite what much within Christendom has taught us, despite what I think is bad theology, our hope is not our ability or willingness to endure until the end. Our endurance will provide us rewards, but our salvation is in Christ alone. This is the way we cast all our anxiety upon him, okay? Yes, we can lose our confidence in the midst of unconfessed sin, and our fellowship with God will be hindered, and there are consequences to sin. But we're still chosen. We have inherited, we are shielded, belonging to God. Listen, when we went through the, the book of Hosea, we found the consequences of, of Judah and Israel's sin to be severe. There was language there that was like, man, I can't believe that God is saying this about his people. Israel disobeyed God. And one of the things we saw about, about Hosea and the, the illustration of having a wife who was a prostitute is that I still want you to love your wife. 
because that is me with my people. Like, what? Yeah, that's me with my people. God's covenant keeping with Israel in the Abrahamic covenant was not based on Israel's obedience, but God's willingness and ability to keep his word. Still watching, still preserving in the midst of the muck of Israel and Judah. Now, certainly Israel was spared ultimate judgment, annihilation, hell, for their disobedience, but there, was, there were consequences for the disobedience, no question about it. We read in Romans 3, 3 and 4, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Listen, we still see God's discipline of Israel in the Old Testament. We still see believers who suffer for sin in the New Testament. Loss of rewards, consequences. But he still keeps his promise and his covenant. My dear friends, this is what I want you to see. The, the, the strength of these propositions that are in these passages about God keeping his promise to us. They're unyielding. They're powerful. They're strong. And then you'll have people who say, yeah, but wait a minute, how about this little preposition right here? Or, or how about this, you know, X, Y, Z, if Christians do this? And how about this verse? You know, yeah, I look at Hebrews, there's an explanation for that. I look at, you know, 1 Corinthians where they talk about you could lose your inheritance. He didn't talk about entering the kingdom. That's uh, rewards in the kingdom. So there are always, I think, good explanations. Not that I understand it all. I certainly don't. But what I'm trying to say is the vast majority of the evidence points to God keeping his promises and that he's the one making this promise to us and we have nothing to do with that. And so all these other arguments you're giving, just give that up for one minute and answer me. You really think we can outdo God? You really think this gets rid of his covenant? Because the Bible seems awfully clear that once we're under that covenant, then case closed. God gave an irreversible promise to Abraham. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. God promised Israel would be his people. And remember, the Abrahamic covenant, you're going to hear me say this multiple times, but I want to make sure it's clear, all right? Not because you're hard of hearing, but because I feel this great weight. Because I see believers who are beguiled in various and asunder ways. So I want to make it abundantly clear. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to insult your intelligence. You're a smart audience. But you'll forgive me for saying it again, okay? The Abrahamic covenant was not with two parties. God and his people were both given responsibilities in the Mosaic Covenant, not the Abrahamic Covenant. If you obey God, he will bless. If you disobey God, you will suffer consequences. The Abrahamic Covenant was different. 
It was a promise made by God alone to his people. Galatians 3.15 says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Nothing God has said or done has changed his promise, even and including the giving of the Mosaic Law 430 years later after the Abrahamic Covenant. When Paul talks about who is responsible to keep the Abrahamic covenant, he says in Galatians that in some covenants, such as the Mosaic law, there are mediators between the two parties. But with the Abrahamic covenant, Galatians 3.20 says, now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. When God made the covenant with Abraham, only God passed through the middle because the covenant was un conditional. And the obligation lay with God himself. So only God is responsible to keep the covenant, unlike the Mosaic. God made a covenant to love his people, and and he's going to keep his promise to his family members. And we're going to enjoy then, because of that, safety and security of that relationship, okay? Listen, it just absolutely fries me that all you got to do is mention, you know, I've talked, I've had this conversation, I know we've talked about this multiple times, so forgive me, but there are certain words that just set people off. All you got to do is say, you know, eternal security, right, okay, Or, or once saved, always saved. Okay? You'll never hear me use those words when I describe this. And you know why? Because there's bias. There's bias. People who have grown up a certain way, there's bias. And listen, there's another illustration of that. I could sit here, and I know this has nothing to do with it, but it applies to the bias. I'm just trying to make the point, okay? Um, I could sit here and say, being a white person in America, I enjoy... I enjoy benefits of that, assumptions that are made, and that there are people of color that don't always get that. And most people say, yeah, yeah. But if I said the term white privilege, people go apoplectic, okay? Because they associate all kinds of political crap along with that. And they see it through a media, you know, filter instead of just saying, you know, racism is a real thing. So, you know, can we just not acknowledge that without using these loaded terms? So in the same way, there are theological terms that way. So when I'm talking about these concepts of God keeping his promise, just look at the majority of the evidence. And so when I look at these other passages that seem problematic, I realize, well, you know, I see what you think it might be saying, but maybe there is another explanation because the majority of the evidence is that this is really true. And that's big stuff here. And I just can't cast that aside, you know, with a couple disclaimers. Galatians 3.29. Did I already give you that? If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. 
The Abrahamic covenant was the promise of God to keep his people. Again, the mosaic, two parties, Abrahamic covenant, one party. And by the way, the Mosaic Covenant is no longer in force. So you had uh, these ceremonial, sacrificial laws under the Mosaic Covenant, under the theocracy of Israel, but it's still instructive to us. The Bible's clear about this, that the Mosaic Covenant still has lessons for us in communicating to us about um, our sin, how far we fall short, and of showing us the glory of the sacrifice of Christ. It's a foreshadowing of Christ. The covenant said this, Mosaic covenant. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today. To go after other gods that, have, that you have not known. Certainly consequences to sin in the Old Testament, and I might add there are consequences to sin in the New Testament for believers, okay? Nobody is saying that if God keeps his promise, that means you can get away with your sin. Let me ask you this. In the book of Hosea, did Israel or Judah get away with their sin? No. And let me tell you this. Even though God keeps his promise in the New Testament, nobody gets away with sin, God will discipline. There'll be a loss of rewards. The Mosaic Covenant is no longer in operation. We are under Christ. He took upon himself our curse and punishment. And Hebrews 10, 12 says that Christ offered for all a sacrifice for sins. We read in Numbers, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? We're known for changing our minds. We're known for reacting emotionally. But God's covenant with Abraham is unconditional and will not change. So therefore, the nation of Israel is preserved. And we are recipients of the Abrahamic covenant. And so we too will be preserved. But we live within a Christian culture, many of us grew up this way, that in order to be accepted, you better live by this, you know, subcultural code. You better do these certain things and live the Christian life right or you're out. Again, God is not faithful to his promises to us because we deserve it. He's faithful because he's God. The Holy One in our midst and the holiness of God is the foundation of all of God's attributes and the cornerstone of our hope. Galatians 3 says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, who is Christ. And I say this, the law which came 430 years later does not revoke a covenant that was previously ratified by God and cancel the promise. Okay, The Mosaic law does not get rid of the Abrahamic covenant. Covenant. For if the inheritance is from the law, it is no longer from the promise, but God granted it to Abraham through the promise. Paul says we are heirs of the Abrahamic covenant, and we are now in Christ. Listen, to say, to say that, you know, uh, God doesn't keep his promises or we can somehow lose it, that's not an affront to me. 
I don't care what a denomination says or an affront to a denomination. We're not even part of a denomination, so I guess that wouldn't matter, all right? But to say that we can lose this position in Christ and abrogate God's covenant so that our salvation rests on us in any form or fashion is just simply to play fast and loose with God's promises. And so Peter says, be firm in your faith. Be firm in your faith. We resist Satan by acknowledging we are not alone. This is the last part of verse 9. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So we resist Satan and are firm in our faith when we realize we are not alone. Peter says that there are others who are suffering, and he's writing to Christians in modern-day Turkey and Asia Minor, but there are others around who are suffering, he says. It's almost as if he's making an emotional appeal to them. He's trying to encourage them. I mean, let's face it, we stand out as social outcasts sometimes because we don't participate in the mindset that the the culture wants us to because maybe we refuse to live as we did formerly. And this leads people to be spiritual exiles, to be mistreated. And, And then you have family and friends that hop on the bandwagon against you. And then you, have, you can have a, a government and religious authorities, like in Peter's day, strategize how to punish you. I mean, you can certainly understand how you would feel lonely in a situation like that. Peter's reminding the Christians that there are other believers like them who are being persecuted. It's like there is this Fellowship of sufferers. Listen, we may not be all in the same room at the same time, but there's great encouragement to know that we are not alone. I hear it a lot from believers being persecuted in other countries. To know that they are being prayed for is a great encouragement. And to go to foreign countries, I haven't been to a whole lot of places, but Russia, South America, Central America, Lebanon, and you meet with Christians that some are living in squalor, and there's this, there's this tremendous fellowship that you enjoy, they suffer, and there's this, there's this likeness that you have with them because of your faith. And I think what... What Peter's trying to do is just stretch out that band and say, hey, guys, you're not alone in this thing, okay? Um, And that has to provide people with some encouragement. I mean, there's going to be a day, especially for those that are persecuted and martyred, that our Savior would stand up and greet them. That's an elite group. In his book, Head Game, author Tim Downs writes, PSYOPs, stands for psychological operations, a form of uh, warfare as old as the art of war itself. 
An early example of this can be found in the battle strategies of Alexander the Great. On one occasion, when his army was in full retreat from a larger army, he gave orders to his armorers to construct oversized breastplates and helmets that would fit men seven or eight feet tall. As his army would retreat, he would leave these items for the pursuing army to discover. And when the enemy would find the oversized gear, they would be demoralized by the thought of fighting such giant soldiers, and they would abandon their pursuit. End quote. Brilliant. And Satan does the same thing. He plays head games with us. Somebody reminded me after the first service, you know, Satan is not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. No, he knows more than us. He has more power than us. He's not omniscient. He cannot, I don't think he can read our thoughts. We think he can. I don't think he can. There's a lot more strength, energy, power that God has outfitted us with to do battle than what we realize. You have a helmet for an eight-foot soldier? Hey, I got a legion of angels. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing for me to fear in this regard. And Satan's going to play head games with us. I'm not diminishing his power, but neither should we be demoralized by fear. And we cannot feel as if we're being abandoned. We are not alone. And God keeps his promises to us. Let's pray.